Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai. Welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. Today, our biggest airport and our biggest airline kick off over the cost of touching down. What we're seeing now is just something that we don't think is affordable for the average traveller. They're not being fully transparent in some of those elements of when they're talking about price increases. Then creaking pipes, pothole roads. What would happen if we shifted our focus from new glitzy infrastructure to better maintaining the stuff we've already got? In two years since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Russian forces make their biggest gains in 10 months. I think the Ukrainians are still hopeful of winning mm. and the Russians are very energized about recent uh, you know, um, success in Abdiivka and uh, both parties are hoping to win militarily. We will have that interview for you shortly. But we begin this morning with a fessel. On Wednesday, the Green MP, former Auckland City Councillor, Pacifica leader for Anana Fessel Collins, died after a medical event in Auckland. Much has been said over the last few days about Efesel, but given his mana and contributions to public discourse and to politics, on Q&A this morning, we wanted to take a bit of time to share with you the reflections of two friends. Auckland University's Dr Patrick Thompson and Auckland Councillor Josephine Bartley are with us this morning. Kia ora kōrua. I'm really sorry for your loss, but thank you for being here. Joe, can we start with you? Can you... Can you just give us a sense as to how you've attempted to process things over the last few days? I think uh, for myself and for probably everyone else out there, it's really uh, thinking about Fia and the girls, uh, Capriella and Asalemo. That that was uh, Efesel's world. And so it it really is, like everyone else, trying to figure out, okay, how can we support and, and, um, you know, be there for them at this this time. So I think that's the temperament out there right now. Yeah, how about you, Patrick? Yeah, very similar. I think, um, you know, for us as uh, Samoans, as Pacific people, we know that in these times of crisis, it's our families that we want to make sure are wrapped in love and taken care of. And anyone who knew Efesel would know that his family was absolutely everything to him. Um, and so, you know, our love and our thoughts and also just all of our care goes to, to Fia and to the girls at this really difficult time. For some time now, Efesel has been one of, if not the most prominent leaders in South Auckland. So in terms of the wider community, how has this news been received and digested? I think it's been a shock to everybody in the communities and you see the outpouring on Facebook, all the organisations that are putting up tributes, uh, even in the rugby or was it the league mm. where they wore, you know, they all uh, paid tribute to Efesel everywhere, all different sectors of society. Uh, and then the personal stories, he reached so many people, um, even if it wasn't face to face, it was by messengers, messages mm. that just supported them. And that spark you see is just rippling out there of the impact he had on people's lives, especially um, our younger generations. Do you think he knew that, Patrick? Um, well, Fess was the kind of person who, who really um, 
just wanted to give and give love to others. And I don't think that he ever was wrapped up in the ego of the whole thing. And so, you know, your question about did he know that? I think he felt the love from our community, mm. but I don't think he um, had an ego big enough to sit there and say that, like, this is the impact that I'm mm. having on others, because that's the kind of person he was, just genuine um, and also just really wanting to connect and help people. And mm. so, um, yeah, it's an interesting way to frame that question, but I would say that he definitely felt loved by the community. That's the best response I can offer that question. Yeah. I wonder if we could reflect on his time at Auckland University. Mm. Ifesel was the first in his family to attend university. He was a founding member of the Auckland University Pacific Island Students Association. Can you talk to us about the kind of impact he has had at university? Massive. Um, so I think before he became, um, you know, a public figure, a politician, um, one of the things that FIS was dedicated towards was trying to um, illuminate pathways for young people in South Auckland, specifically Pacific youth in general, who had a similar kind of um, background to him, to illuminate pathways into higher education. And one of the things that he helped to establish at the university was the Dream Fonotanga. Um, this started in 2002, and it was a program that was designed specifically for Pacific youth youth in year 12 across the entire country to be able to come together, connect and also see higher education as a viable pathway for them and for their futures. And then following that, he also worked for the university for 15 years um, in our equity office. So he had a major, major impact. And all my friends, like um, I started university in 2002, mm. um, we all knew FES because FES was always at all of our events. He was always encouraging us, sending us messages saying, you know, um, you're doing your family proud like this is what your family have always wanted for you and like I'm here standing here I was sitting here sorry speaking to you about his legacy at the university but um, there are so many people that he touched all of my friends all of my contemporaries that I went to university with mm. um, just know how much he he gave to all of us um, what was your impression of him then at uni oh he was jovial he was funny he was lively um, but just really caring and generous to so many others, um, even to me. And one thing about Fess is that no matter how high his public profile became, he still remained connected to us in the mm. community. Um, and he would message everybody. Um, like like um, Josephine was saying, there's a lot of tributes that have come out on social media and people are saying things like, Fess would randomly message me. Um, like I haven't seen him in two weeks or and I haven't seen him in two months and he would just randomly message me to ask how I was, how's mm. my family? That's the kind of guy he was, you know? He, walk into a room and he knows everybody there uh, at Josephine it yes. would be like it's so difficult to to do what you needed to do when you were supposed to meet up with him because everyone would come up and say hello because yeah. he knew everyone in the yeah. community that was the kind of person that he was yeah I know it can be difficult to quantify these things but Pacifica students have traditionally been underrepresented at universities and tertiary education in New Zealand so if you think back over the last 20 years or so I mean just how significant is Fessel's influence when it comes to bringing more Pacifica students into those higher learning pathways? Yeah, I mean, if I can use myself as an example, yeah. um, when I started university in 2002, um, you know, the numbers weren't great then, they're mm. not great now, but what I can definitely see now in 2023, now that I've come back as a lecturer, well, the fact that I'm back as a lecturer, um, mm. Fessel was part of a group of Pacific leaders at that time at the university who were encouraging a lot of us to consider PhDs, mm. to consider doing master's degrees. Because when I was coming through university, sorry, coming through high school, uh, university was kind of the be all, the end all, getting an undergraduate degree and then moving on and working for your family. But his, his group of, of leaders at the university, um, Pacific leaders, 
definitely help to shift that narrative and say, look, you know, you can be in these leadership mm. positions. You can be at the front of the classroom. And this is the kind of work that him and his contemporaries did. Mm. Um, when I was an undergraduate student, which was um, 20 or so years ago, but at, the, at that time, um, it was new, you know, to have um, Pacific lectures. And so, you know, that's part of his legacy. Mm. Um, and, you know, our current Pro Vice Chancellor Pacific, um, Professor Jemima Tietesiao, she was um, an undergraduate student with him as well. And she speaks about um, just the special friendship that they had and mm. how he would always encourage her as well. So just an immense legacy. Yes. Joe, I, um, he was a great advocate. And, and, and just out of interest this week, I went and had a look at the TVNZ archives, and there are dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of Anana Official Collins appearances on various shows stretching all the way back to 1999. But what was he like as a politician? Yeah, as a politician, he was very effective. Um, he was an advocate, not just because of the titles that he carried, you know, mm. councillor or local board uh, or, um, you know, the organisations he was involved in, it was just in, ingrained in him, that advocacy. I was on the Tuvalu radio show last night and they talked about how it was a fissile that uh, represented them mm. when they were uh, trying to work in with the council who was trying to combine them into the villages with other small islands mm. for Pacifica. So his advocacy is, uh, you know, widespread. Uh, as a politician, you can see uh, the strength he had to take on, you know, he didn't play the game. And he he pushed the boundaries and he went there mm. in fighting for uh, communities, fighting for that injustice, mm. he called it out. And politically that is risky because you've always got to think, can I get voted back in? And he didn't think of that, he just thought, what is the right thing to do? And everything he did was to create a better world for his daughters. You saw that that was the reason why he took the platform into council, was for a better city took the platform into parliament for a better country and then fighting for, you know, climate issues for a better world. His motivation was out of love for his daughters, for a better world for his daughters. Mm. And that carried him through all the challenges and the death threats and everything that faced him, you know, the racism he encountered when he stood for the mayoralty. Uh, so, yeah, he was a very effective, strong, unique politician. The sense I got watching from the outside was that perhaps Fessel Collins, when it came to national politics, took a bit of time to find his place. And over the last few years, that there has been some back and forth as to which party he might be best suited to in a national politics setting. What was the significance of him being elected to Parliament as a List Party member for the Greens? The significance? A lot of people out there felt that they finally had a voice in there. Someone who wasn't restrained or who wasn't sticking to party lines or who wasn't afraid to tell, you know, speak the truth mm. of what was happening on the ground. Uh, and people felt a lot of hope and people felt inspired mm. by him. And, uh, you know, that continues. Someone said to me the other day, oh, it wasn't a so amazing. And I said, when you're where you're meant to be, you radiate. And, you know, he's radiating now. His, his legacy isn't over. It's not finished. So mm. many people are going to, you know, um, honour his life, his fight, uh, by taking up the mantle themselves. Patrick, back in 2012, a was public in his opposition to same-sex marriage. He felt that his position was informed by his faith at the time. Mm. You disagreed. 
and the two of you had some pretty tough conversations. Can you talk to us about that journey for Efesil? Yeah, I mean, it was an um, interesting time for Pacific communities. Um, I w actually wasn't here at that time, Jack. I was overseas mm. um, working and studying. Um, but we did have interesting conversations via email and, um, and text. And um, Efesil's journey towards better understanding, I can say, um, was something that his family was responsible for. And this is a conversation that we had. I don't think a lot of people are aware of this. Ephesol was a person who led with love. And even at that time in 2012, he believed that he was showing his love for his community by, um, you know, saying things that I didn't agree with. Um, but he felt like he was serving his church and his community at that moment. That's where the disagreement came. And um, over time, he came to understand that those words that he used were um, very, very hurtful to certain members of Pacific communities. And he had an incident happen within his family that helped him understand that. So I know that there's been a lot of conversation about, you know, other people trying to influ well, influencing that, that change, but actually it was something that came from within him and within his family. So mm. just kind of picking up of what Josephine was saying, his family was everything for him. Um, and, you know, that's his own private story that I don't want to share, but, um, you know, it was his family that really pushed him towards that place of understanding. And I was sitting on the other side, um, welcoming him um, by giving him the opportunity to connect with more Pacific Rainbow peoples over, um, you know, the last few years. And, and he's taken that opportunity. Mm. He took that opportunity um, really well. And um, I think he should be credited for showing a high degree of integrity as a politician mm. to be able to actually stand up and say, I made a mistake and I hurt people, I'm sorry. I don't think a lot of politicians would do that easily. Um, but that just speaks to the kind of integrity that he held as a person. Um, and first and foremost, a friend. And that's how our conversations always started and mm. ended, was our friendship first and foremost. And so these are the things that I think are important, those nuances for mm. people to know about the multi-dimensional nature of who he was as a person and a politician. I've got one last question for the both of you. I went back and watched Ephesus' maiden speech in Parliament this week in which he talked about representing poor and, and marginalised communities. How should his colleagues ensure that those communities are still represented with the same energy and prominence? Uh, I think with Efeso, uh, he loved seeing uh, young people, he loved seeing Basifika excel. Uh, so it is for us to uh, do the best we can uh, for ourselves and for our communities and to stand up. I think that's what he would want us to do, mm. no matter what our differences are and to deal with things with grace and compassion. Mm. In the face of all that he faced, he was still compassionate and cared about others. Yeah, agreed 100%. Like that grace and compassion in the way that you work towards building a better New Zealand is something that Ephesol always spoke about. And I think um, for his colleagues, especially his, his colleagues who have now lost um, a caucus member, you know, the values that he um, espoused, those policies that he wanted to to, to push for the square pegs that couldn't fit into the round holes is what he used in his speech. Um, it's time to stand up and honour his legacy by mm. making sure that that work doesn't fall to the wayside. And for us as Pacific people, Pacific people here in New Zealand, it's important that, like Josephine said, that we continue to strive for our dreams, we continue to aim better for our communities, and we continue to work in a spirit mm. of service in Tautua because that was at the core of who FSL was. Dr. Patrick Thompson, Josephine Bartley, really, I'm so sorry for your loss. And thank you for being with us this morning. Thank you.
after the break on Q&A. Is air travel back? What can Air New Zealand's performance tell us about the state of the global economy? Hoki mighty, we welcome back to Q&A. Once again, Air New Zealand and Auckland Airport are scrapping over the future of landing fees. The airline says passengers are going to end up paying unreasonable landing fees to cover an unnecessarily grand airport redevelopment. Auckland Airport says the redevelopment is necessary and future-proofs arguably our most important gateway with the world. Here's Auckland Airport CEO Carrie Hudihanganui. We're in the middle of a price-setting review now uh, and it feels like uh, Air New Zealand is looking to circumvent uh, that process so that they have the ability to influence. And listen, they are commercially incentivized to do so. If your airport charges go up, that puts pressure on your profit margins. It opens up the ability for competition. So, you know, I understand where they're coming from, but I, we believe the system in place works and it needs to run through. That Commerce Commission review is due out in May. But Air New Zealand says it wants a negotiation and mediation framework to be introduced so that airlines have a more formalised input. Air New Zealand CEO Greg Foran is with us this morning. Kia ora, good morning. Morena, Jack. From a regulatory perspective, what sort of mediation or arbitration process do you want? Yeah, look, first of all, this is a pretty big number we're talking about here. Just to put it in perspective, and because numbers can, you know, get out of proportion, it's about sort of three times the cost of a national broadband rollout. It's about seven times the cost of Walkworth, Puhoy motorway extension. So big number. This is for the airport redevelopment. For the airport yeah. redevelopment, yeah. stage one. Um, and, you know, what we want to do is we're not going to come to an agreement here easily with the airport on this. So we're asking the government to simply step in. No regulatory change needed, mm. but to take a look at it. We think there's about a billion dollars that we can save here. Yeah, and uh, I mean, Auckland Airport would dispute that. They, and I know that you've, you've provided them an alternative plan with the billion dollar savings. They mm -hmm. say that that plan is inappropriate for an airport, that it doesn't allow for certain processing that happens behind the scenes and that kind of thing. But when it comes to that mediation or arbitration role, why is that necessary when we have the Commerce Commission keeping a close eye on all of this all of the landing fees? Sure. Well, the Commerce Commission actually only look at a component of it. They're not actually looking at that $6.7 billion spent. They're only concentrating on the return on the $6.7 billion. So it's a bit like, you know, if you were taking a, a mortgage out on a house, the Commerce Commission are very interested in what the mortgage rate is. What the Commerce Commission aren't looking at is whether that original yeah. amount that you're taking out seven billion is too much. So we're asking the government simply to take a look at it. They don't need to mm. make any regulatory change. It happens right around the world. Mm. We're not the only ones that are concerned about it. In fact, the people who originally worked with Auckland Airport on this particular plan, they've said there's about a billion dollar saving here. Let's take a look at it because it all matters at the end to everyone. Right. I know the minister responsible is saying he will wait for the time being. We are expecting that Commerce Commission report to be returned in May. Why not wait until that point? Why not wait until see and, and see what the Commerce Commission actually says? After all, of the three parties involved here, in New Zealand, Auckland Airport and the Commerce Commission, those are the ones supposedly acting in consumers' interests. Well, 
Actually, all airlines are involved in this, as I said. So Qantas and Jetstar are in this, Barnes are in it. Air Chathams have come out and said mm. we're concerned about it. So it's not just an air But it's in their commercial interest as well, right? All of those airlines' commercial sure. interests. Just as it's in Auckland Airport's commercial interest to do one thing, this is my point, the Commerce Commission is acting on behalf of consumers. Well, the Commerce Commission are only looking, as I said, at a component mm. of a check. We want the ministers to step in and say, actually broaden your scope. Don't just look at the, if you like, the interest rate. Take a look at the mm. total amount that's getting spent, because it's a big amount. Mm. You know, it's seven times the cost of getting from Poohoy to Walkworth, mm. and it hasn't finished yet. And as I say, Auckland Airport would say that it's absolutely necessary to future-proof such an important asset. Um, in your half-year results this week, you laid out some of your concerns about softening economic conditions. So, so what do you see from your perspective as being the most significant problems in the short to medium term? Yeah, I guess two things that we're seeing. First one is that um, I suspect, um, you know, what we're going to see out of government during the year is a tightening on spending. Now, for our domestic business, about 60% of it's leisure and about 40% of it is business, government, small to medium enterprises. So if you get a sort of a third of that starting mm. to constrain its spending, we need to be conscious of that. Um, probably the right thing to do for the economy. There's been quite a bit of expenditure we know there. We've benefited from that in the past. I think we'll see a little bit of tightening. That's one aspect. And the second aspect is we're seeing some pretty significant competition, particularly out of North America at the mm. moment. And that's more of a geopolitical issue really between China and the US. There's just a lot of North American carriers now that are flying into New Zealand. And so what we're starting to see is particularly down the, the economy end of the plane, a lightening of loads and a dropping of prices. That's interesting. So you, it's a geopolitical issue, you think? Yeah. So that, that, the, the, the tensions between China and the United States when it comes to geostrategic positioning, particularly in the, in the Pacific, that is reflected when it comes to air travel? Well, it's maybe even a little bit broader than, than if you like, tensions. Mm. But, you know, the US-China air travel has been quite slow to start up. Uh, initially, literally 24 flights, so 12 from the US, 12 from China, per week. Mm. Um, you know, this is a, is a route that used to do between 600 and seven, mm. 600 to 700 flights per week. Currently, they're sitting at 48. Yeah, right. So, you know, what you've got is a situation where China is reasonably slow mm. at renewing passports, getting visas out there. So the travel is a bit slow to start mm. up. And part of that will be to fuel their domestic economy. The US, of course, have got to deal with the fact that to get to China, they're often having to fly over Russian airspace. So there's a Ukraine-Russia effect there. Plus, to be honest, it probably suits them to have capacity really reduced mm. because it drives prices up. End result of that is that US carriers have got spare planes sitting around. What do you do when you've got spare planes? You find somewhere to fly them. Mm. So we've got 28 flights a week between Auckland and LA in a route that, you know, traditionally would generally run about 14 to 16. So there's just more capacity, more capacity, prices come down. More broadly, how do you assess the trajectory of our economy? Um, I'm actually optimistic. Optimistic not just for New Zealand. I'm, I'm optimistic around what I see happening 
around the world, to be honest with you. I'll just pick two areas, for example, one being sort of the transportation area mm. and another one being one which is, which is spoken a lot about, um, artificial intelligence. But, you know, I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing in transportation. You know, the jet engine's been around since sort of 1942. You're now seeing electric aircraft being designed. You're seeing mm. hypersonic, supersonic aircraft being designed. Space, you know, the objective of what's happening in space is not to work out how to get to the moon. Mm. They've already solved that. In fact, they had a commercial one land there last week. It's how do you do it at a lower cost? Because if you can do things at a lower cost, that creates an opportunity. Um, artificial intelligence, I think what we're seeing here, Jack, is, is something which is absolutely unprecedented in my lifetime. Um, an entire industry is literally being born in months. Mm. You know, NVIDIA, um, you know, started off producing gaming chipsets. Um, you know, I, I see on eBay you can now buy these for you know, 40,000 US dollars. That's a $2 trillion business. So I'm encouraged by, by that. Mm. And, you know, what New Zealand needs to do is to work out how do you participate in some of those things? Now, the idea wouldn't be to take them all on, but how do you create an environment where you encourage investment and components of industries that are surging ahead? Mm. Um, you know, so that so that we can make something of it. So there, I'm optimistic. Are there, are, there, are there things that we could be doing differently or better then? Yeah, you know, usually what it comes down to in these things is how easy do you make it for people to do business? Mm. Because I think the only truly competitive advantage you have in almost anything you do is speed. And the moment that you start layering in bureaucracy and administration and things that slow down the ability of people to get on and do things quickly, they will start to look for other areas mm. to go and invest in. So, you know, I'd pick a couple of areas and go for it. Make it really easy to do business. Are there areas that stand out to you? Well, you know, I'll just pick one that I think makes quite a bit of sense. Um, and, and we've had a little bit of success with this, but mm. how do you do more? Electric aircraft. Right. You know, um, we've got out there and we've bought one. Yeah. Um, now, it's a, it's a small, it's five-seater. It'll initially be doing cargo. But it just so happens that, you know, if we can create an environment between the Civil Aviation mm. Authority and various other departments, Ministry of Transport, that says, hey, here's an opportunity to, to become a leading you know, developmental place for electric aircraft. I'll be, I'd be surprised if we couldn't make something work. Now, initially that five-seater isn't gonna make a lot of sense to people, but when I talk to people who are close to this, they can see a path forward in terms of battery development right. where that's gonna turn into a 30 or a 35-seater quite quickly, i.e. within sort of five to seven years. So what's government's role in fostering an environment where we can move more quickly? Yeah the regulation and the bureaucracy out of the way where it doesn't support, you know, the right things that we want to support, whether it be safety or, or et cetera. Let people get in here and have a go and invest quickly. What, what does the change in government mean on that front then? Um, I'm encouraged by, by what I see. Um, you know, in the dealings that we've had to date um, across transport, across commerce, 
Um, some, a different approach? Yeah, I think, I think people want to get on and get things done. Mm. And, um, you know, I like the idea of reducing what you're trying to do. Pick three or four things that you want to go after and then go hard on those. Mm. You know, invariably in business, and I suspect government isn't a lot different, if you spread yourself too wide, you don't ever have enough resources, no matter what your scale is. Mm. So what are the three or four things that you want to go hard in? Go hard on those. Put the others on a to-do list, but let's focus on what we want to knock over first. I've got to ask you about domestic airfares. They seem very expensive at the moment, uh, but you've said they are likely to increase further in the short term. Yeah. What does that do to Air New Zealand's social licence? Look, um, I, I certainly would be one of the most asked questions I get, Jack. You know, drop the price. The, the reality is airline pricing is quite a complicated topic, isn't it? Mm. You know, you start selling something a year out, those first seats can be pretty cheap, often under cost. If you start to buy late, then you're paying above the odds. Mm. And there aren't too many industries I've ever been involved in where the delta between the lowest price and the highest price is so significant. Um, now, it's different if you're a low-cost carrier. You tend to be like a Ryanair or even a Jetstar. You, you pick a price and you just go for that. Yeah. The problem with that is you can't guarantee seats at the end. We're facing inflation like everyone else's around the country. In fact, when we have a look at inflation over sort of the last four years, ours is running at about 25 to 30%, whether it's navigation charges or landing charges or catering or dry cleaning or whatever. We've absorbed a lot of those costs. You can only hold them for so long. So mm. when I look at margins on domestic today, mm. and I know people would say, well, gee, it's expensive to fly. I'm actually not making the same margin that I was four years ago. Mm. Now, I need to get that up a bit. I don't have to get it all the way up, but it needs to be profitable because if it isn't, it gets really difficult to keep investing and innovating and doing new things in the airline. From a leadership perspective, though, it must, be, it must add a curious dimension compared to some of your previous roles, in which I suppose there could, at times, arguably, have been more of a focus on immediate profits. But you have the social licence dimension that I suppose adds a, a, a bit more tension to your equations. Is that fair? Yeah. I, I don't think it's just me, Jack. When I look around the world at a number of CEOs that I talk to and have met and have spent time with, I think the role of a CEO is actually quite different and in some ways more difficult today than what it was 20 years ago. You know, 20 years ago, you focused intently on looking after your customer and looking after your shareholder. Mm. They were two key stakeholders. Do what's right for the customer, make sure the shareholder gets a return. These days, it's increasingly important to look after your staff. Some will argue that's always been mm. there, but I think you're seeing a, an increasing, you know, um, amount of effort required in there. And then two other stakeholders become important. One is suppliers, and the third one is the communities in which you operate. And as I look around the world, businesses that aren't adopting a reasonably long-term approach and balancing across all of those stakeholders um, stand the risk of getting into a bit of trouble. Mm. So the, the social license to operate hasn't reduced, it's increased. Mm. And we're very cognizant of that in New Zealand. And I think increasingly a lot of businesses are. 
Well, thank you very much for giving us your time this morning. We always appreciate it. My pleasure. In New Zealand CEO, Greg Foran. So, you know, as well as watching our show on TVNZ+, you can also find all of our interviews on YouTube. Just search NZ Q&A and we will pop right up. After the break, there's no point buying new stuff if you don't look after what you've already got. The frank message for our politicians when it comes to funding New Zealand's infrastructure. In the decade to 2022, for every 10 bucks we spent on new infrastructure in New Zealand, almost $6 of existing infrastructure wore out. That is the conclusion from a new report from the New Zealand Infrastructure Commission, Te Waihanga, which says we are at risk of focusing on new infrastructure at the expense of maintaining what we already have. Te Waihanga's Jeff Cooper is with us this morning. Kia ora, good morning. Kia ora, good to be here. Your report finds that we have infrastructure assets in New Zealand worth almost $300 billion. So how does New Zealand compare to other countries when it comes to our asset base? Well, um, when it comes to thinking about how much we spend on assets, we're actually in the top 20% of uh, advanced countries. We've been spending a lot. That number has been increasing over the last 20 years. The per capita numbers on how much we spend on infrastructure have increased 70% since 1990. Uh, uh, but the problem here, of course, is that when it comes to turning inputs into outputs, efficiency, uh, how fast we're moving around on the network, uh, we're in the bottom 10% or close to the bottom 10% of advanced countries. That is remarkable, the difference between those two numbers. Why is that? Well, I think we've got a leaky bucket when it comes to New Zealand, right? Uh, and uh, there's, there's two sort of approaches. When you see a leaky bucket, either you want to put more water into it uh, or you want to start uh, mending those holes to stop the water coming out, right? And we have different approaches. I would say uh, re in recent times for many of our sectors, we're more intent on putting more water into that bucket than we are fixing the holes. Yeah, talk to us a bit more about that. The difference between investing in new infrastructure and maintaining what we already have. Yeah, so there's a real decision there, right? I mean, if you can invest more in new infrastructure, but ultimately it's going to mean that you might not be able to keep up with your maintenance, your renewals. You think about that for a house. If you go and renovate your kitchen, it might mean that you can't paint uh, your, your weatherboards. Uh, and ultimately, you can do that for a little while. You can put off painting the house, but at some point, uh, the weatherboards is going to start rotting and the costs go up a lot more in the future. And that ultimately means if you're not optimising that, that maintenance, you're going to get less infrastructure, not more in the long run. Why? Because I, you, know, you hear that problem, the depreciation gap, if you like, and you think, well, it's obvious, right? Politicians like to come out and promise new infrastructure, glitzy new projects, because it's not nearly as sexy to say, actually, we're going to be pouring a whole heap of that money into looking after the assets we already have. But is it that simple? I, I think there's three theories on like why we're so bad at maintenance. The first is we're a young country. Uh, we've actually not been around that long. When you think about the last 100 years, we've gone from one megawatt of electricity to 9,500. Mm. So we're only just getting through the first couple of cycles of maintenance. We're not the Dutch, right? So that's point, that's point one. The second is that infrastructure uh, maintenance is hard. Right, uh, digging up pipes to look at their quality is expensive, and you know it was Kurt Vonnegut who said a flaw in human character is our uh, is that everybody wants to build and nobody wants to do maintenance. Right, so that's theory number two, and theory number three is that we're not always incentivized to care. Uh, and when you look at some of the um, types of infrastructure that we do well in, what you see is that the revenue stream, the way we're funding the infrastructure comes from the asset, mm. right? And if your revenue stream comes from an asset, you are incentivized uh, to maintain that asset. And so we start looking at institutional settings. Yeah, so let's talk about that a little bit because your report found about three quarters of New Zealand's infrastructure assets are publicly held, so by councils and government, that sort of thing. Uh, about a quarter is privately held. 
And then if you think about the different forms of infrastructure, roading, um, water infrastructure, where I think most of our viewers would agree there are some pretty prominent issues at the moment. And then you think about the types of infrastructure that are more likely to be held in, in, in private terms, things like um, electricity and, and gas mm. assets. Mm. Those have, those privately held assets have consistent revenue streams, right? Whereas some of those public assets don't. That is a, yeah, as a generalisation, that's true, right? When you think about transmission, distribution, lines, companies and whatnot, they do, you, you receive a bill for how much electricity you use. Mm. In some parts of New Zealand, you receive a bill for how much water you use. In other parts, you don't. You just receive a rates bill. Um, and so there's some, some variation there. But by and large, you know, um, the, the, this is a difference between our infrastructure sector. So, so what can we do then for those publicly held assets for which we don't necessarily have the steady revenue streams like we do for some of those privately held assets to incentivise uh, right. investment? Right. In our, well, the in first market. point would be uh, if you can tie your revenue stream to your asset, you should. Right. So if you're thinking about things like water metering, volumetric charging, congestion charging, it makes a lot of sense from a maintenance point of view to do that. But obviously, um, in some sectors, that's difficult to do. I'm thinking healthcare hospitals. Um, and so in those sectors, we're thinking about information disclosures. Right. Let's know what, what we can. And, and to us, for this report, what we found is there's a lot of unknowns, unknow unknowns out there. Right. And I'll categorise it in three ways. Uh, for commercial and regulated infrastructure, what we see is that they are keeping up with their depreciation mm. and it looks pretty good. For local government, we can see that they're investing about 74 cents in the dollar uh, on all of their assets, right? So not good, but at least we know. Uh, and then when it comes to central government infrastructure, putting transport and NZTA aside, um, hospitals, schools, defence and so forth, we don't have the disclosure requirements there. And so it's a big gap in our knowledge is, you know, how, how much are we investing in depreciation maintenance for these assets? And uh, how would we know other than going around and walking around a hospital? Yeah, so, and, and, and so if we are able to better quantify how much we are or are not spending in maintenance, where do we go from there, especially when it comes to some of those political dimensions and the incentives for promising new big glitzy projects as opposed to maintaining stuff? Well, I think one way is to think about ring fencing maintenance, right, so that you're not compromising your maintenance. So that's not subject to kind of political wills of the day. That's right. You are, and, you, you know, you can kick the can a little on maintenance, right? We'll paint the house next year so we can get a TV this year. You can do that. Um, but you can't do it indefinitely. And at the end of the day, uh, when you invest in a new piece of infrastructure, a new asset, that is an obligation to maintain uh, now and into the future. Yeah, well, how, how much is the gap at the moment? If we're spending, well, we need to be spending $6 um, and every 10 to maintain the stuff we've already got, how much do things need to change? Uh, well, as I say, I think for, for local government, um, you know, the number would be 26 cents. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that would be the number. Um, uh, and, and for um, roads, uh, there's a bit, a, it, it sort of varies, but it looks to be um, probably about 40% mm. at the moment. Those are the numbers that Waka Katahi put out. Um, the national capital accounts say something a little bit higher. But there are significant holes in some parts. Those of are vast. Yeah. Those are vast gaps. There was one thing that stuck out to me in the report as well. Considering investment in recent decades, you noted across the different infrastructure types or forms that roading is top of the heap. Quote, road transport was the largest single investment category, averaging about $700 per capita per person from 2013 to 22, uh, 2022. The lowest spend was on hospital investment mm -hmm. at $140 per capita, despite a trend towards an ageing population. Well, what does that say about our priorities as a, as a society. 
Yeah, it, well, it was it was James Frick, wasn't it, the emeritus at um, uh, Notre Dame that said, don't tell me what your priority, priorities are, show me what your spend is and I'll tell you what they are. Mm. Um, and I think that this report kind of reveals some of that stuff, not over one electoral cycle or two, but actually over generations where we put our money. Now, when it comes to the transport and the hospitals numbers, it is to me quite staggering that they are as low as they are, but there are also reasons for that. Transportation is an input to many of our infrastructure sectors mm. uh, and we use it every day. Um, freight, goods, mm. getting around, commuting. And so it makes sense that one would be- Whereas some people may not visit a hospital, fingers crossed, for, for decades. Right, exactly right. Um, so that's one part of it. But there are sort of, um, uh, sort of less optimistic <laughs> things going on here as well, right? We do have a tendency to try and build our way out of things like congestion in this country. And uh, certainly when it comes to Auckland, despite mm. billions put into a transport network, we've had transport speeds continue to decline for two decades, right? Mm. So I think a build first mentality um, hasn't got us as far as we would, we would like. The other thing I would sort of say about hospitals is that when you look at how much we are spending as a proportion of aged population over mm. 65, rather than per capita, we actually have been spending a declining amount for 15 years now. So mm. I think that this is an area that probably needs a bit more attention. Hey, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Jeff Cooper from Te Waihanga, the Infrastructure Commission. After the break on Q&A, New Zealand commits $25 million in aid and weapons for Ukraine. But two years since the invasion, is there any hope for a Ukrainian victory? Exactly two years since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the government has announced an additional $25 million in aid and weapons for the Ukrainian cause. But international support for Ukraine is faltering. And this week, Russian forces made their most significant territorial gains in 10 months. Ruben Azizian is a professor at the Centre for Defence and Security Studies at Massey University. He's one of the first voices we sought in the hours after the invasion. And two years on, we asked him where the war is at. I think the war has gone through cycles and it has gone through uh, cycles of uh, perceptions and misperceptions as well, I think. Uh, early in the war, uh, there was this... Uh, fear by some that Russia will prevail immediately. Russian leadership was hopeful of uh, taking over swiftly. That didn't happen. And uh, that was followed by a period where um, there was praise for Ukrainian resistance, understandably and uh, deservedly. But I think there was also the, the feeling that, you know, the Russian army is too weak. Uh, you know, um, Ukrainians will succeed very, very, very soon. Um, and they did on a couple of occasions. They were able to fight back and the Russians had to withdraw from areas of, you know, Kharkiv and uh, Kherson. Last time I was here, we were talking about the gains in Kherson. But apparently Russians have regrouped, organized themselves. And uh, so it's never good to underestimate um, and I think we underestimated the Ukrainians and then later underestimated the Russians. As a result, we are where we are now, which is some call it a stalemate. I wouldn't call it a stalemate because I think stalemate is also um, when both parties are ready to, to talk because they don't see any uh, further progress. Uh, I don't think we are there. I think the Ukrainians are still hopeful of winning mm. and the Russians are very energized about recent, uh, you know, um, success in Avdiivka and uh, both parties are hoping to win militarily. So I don't think this is a stalemate.
Right. Just talk to us about that final point there, because in recent months and indeed in recent days, we have seen a momentum shift of sorts. The Ukrainian offensive failed in its stated objectives. Russian forces have made their most significant territorial gains since May of last year. So, so, so how, how significant is that momentum shift? It is significant, for sure, but I think there are various uh, phases, but also various uh, dimensions of, of the conflict, right? So there is a territorial, um, very exhausting uh, fight going on for uh, every inch of territory. Mm. There, the Russians seem to be prevailing, and uh, taking over Abdivka is important because it, it allows them to move forward. But at the same time, we are seeing the Russians losing uh, their Black Sea fleet, Mm. Uh, they're losing some very, uh, you know, precious uh, uh, aircraft. The, uh, you know, the early warning two planes were hit. And very importantly, Russian territories are being un are under attack. I mean, people in border areas in Russia, are, for the first time, are feeling the impact of the war. Mm. So you can't just say it's not just about territory, um, because sometimes. Uh, I find that there is this talk about, you know, how about peace, you know, uh, for uh, territorial compromise and peace. It's not just about territory. It's about uh, survival of a nation. It's about, um, uh, you know, Mr. Putin's imperial ambitions. Mm. Uh, and so it, it's not only fought uh, in a land area, it's fought everywhere, air, water, but also psychologically and in the minds of people as well. OK, can you talk to us a, bit, a little bit more about that point? Because as someone who speaks Russian fluently, what, what is your sense as to the tone of media domestically within Russia, but also the, the, the general sense as to uh, people's attitude towards the conflict? Yeah, that's a difficult one because uh, I speak Russian, I read uh, Russian media, uh, I talk to people who've been to Russia. Um, but uh, uh, many Russians don't even know what's happening in their country and what's happening in the war because the recent poll showed that 50% of Russians don't even follow news from the front. They are either, um, you know, don't care or they are tired. So um, definitely uh, the war has had an impact. We're seeing growing uh, discontent. I mean, there are a couple of signs that are, I think, very clear that uh, many Russians want an end to the war. Um, there are some movement of wives of uh, uh, soldiers, but also recent uh, um, two candidates who were disqualified for elections. Both wanted the end of the war, and amazingly, there was a significant support for mm. uh, Nadezhdin. Uh, hundreds of thousands of people working signatures. But it's not that simple. I, I would say that there are Russians who are still very hawkish, and they see that uh, this is a war with, uh, mm. uh, you know, uh, thankless uh, Ukraine or, or the West. But there are many who I think are feeling the impact and uh, who are seeing the losses. So um, this is definitely, I think, dividing the Russians. And dividing the Russians could be a prelude uh, to some sort of a social tension and unrest in the future. But I mm -hmm. don't see any signs immediately now. I think it's, it's uh, what happens in the, in the battlefield that matters more. Overnight, the Americans have announced a new series of sanctions against Russia. Well, what impact are those sanctions actually having in terms of support for the war in Russia? Well, according to witnesses who've been to Russia, well, uh, the major cities, Moscow, St. Petersburg, uh, I think they don't really, they don't see much impact of the sanctions because 
the Russian government has learned how to avoid sanctions. There are some uh, friendly nations who are willing to help through you know, transiting some imports and all that. And very importantly, uh, Russia is still uh, receiving huge uh, revenues from oil and gas exports to China and India. So oftentimes when people say, who can stop the war? Uh, we need to look at uh, countries like China and India who continue to fuel the economy. And once they get the, their revenues, they can spend money on supporting the economy, stability. Mm -hmm. So uh, it, it, uh, I think there is definitely um, the uh, non-large city, you know, uh, rural areas, distant you know, uh, kind of province, provinces filled because most of the soldiers go from there. Uh, and the economy and the uh, you know, level of poverty is mm. uh, growing. Uh, so there is definitely an economic impact, but not in the large cities. I think, but many Russians, I'm sure, feel the discomfort of being some kind of isolated. Look, uh, Russia cannot uh, participate in, in any international sports games. And uh, it is a nation that is very proud of its uh, you know, uh, athletic achievements. And uh, I'm sure people, uh, uh, you know, not not very comfortable with that. I mean, it's yeah. not just the economic uh, impact; it's uh, uh, overall the reputational and uh, uh, other types of mm -hmm. cultural impact. Where Russian culture is basically not not being, uh, you know, uh, welcomed. Outside of Russia, Alexei Navalny's death was big news. How does that contrast to the news internally within Russia? And, and what is his death likely to mean for opposition to Vladimir Putin come next month's elections? Well, I don't expect much uh, real opposition in the election. Uh, I think everyone is pretty right. confident that um, Mr. Putin will win again. It's a fairly uh, safe bet. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. So one way or the other. And it's not just, yeah, it's a combination of things. I, I don't think we have to take the extremes of like this will be all falsified and only because it's rigged Putin wins. No, unfortunately, he has a. He's a significant uh, group of supporters, but uh, definitely there will be uh, some falsifying uh, mm. in, in areas, and oftentimes it's the local governors who want to impress the boss mm. with a number of loyal people who support it. But uh, um, interestingly, Boris Nadezhin, who was disqualified, he said yesterday, I think, that he will continue to fight, uh, but uh, he will use a different tactic. He will not use Alexei Navalny's tactic, which was very much putting pressure on Putin personally, exposing his corruption deals mm -hmm. and all that. He said, Najajin said, no, no, I, I will take the, the, the legal kind of process. Through, I, go, I will win through the ballot. Uh, now, some people will say he, he's naive. There's no way it's going to happen. Uh, I think uh, right now, uh, the widow, um, Yulia Navalny is gathering a lot of support. She's a very strong woman. Um, and uh, I think we are seeing signs of opposition who has always unfortunately been divided, is starting to pull ranks mm -hmm. behind her. And uh, a, a powerful woman who lost her husband um, mm. in charge could be a, a, a strong signal. And this is why we, we see that uh, the Russian leadership is very worried about mm public funeral of Navalny because that could uh, attract uh, large crowds. I read an amazing piece of reportage this, uh, this week that suggested artillery has accounted for about 80% of the casualties in the war so far, but that in recent times Russia has been firing about five artillery shells for every shell Ukrainian forces have been firing. Of course, that comes down to the Ukrainian forces, in their view, being insufficiently armed. 
How much then does November's US election loom over this conflict? Right. I mean, and we are particularly talking about Mr. Trump potentially winning the elections, right? Uh, interestingly... And, and potentially cutting off support. Or cutting off Ukrainian support, forces. right. Uh, you know, I, I, Mr. Putin recently um, said uh, between the two candidates, he, he thought Biden was a, a, a more, a, a, you know, um, predictable and very traditional and experienced leader. Um, in return, uh, Mr. Biden called him a son of a bitch. Uh, so that's an interesting diplomatic exchange we are seeing. But uh, I don't know why he praised Biden against Trump, whether he was teasing uh, Biden or perhaps, uh, perhaps there is also uh, some concern uh, in the Kremlin that while Trump uh, may personally like Putin and may want a, a meeting with him and may slow down support to Ukraine, but uh, um, Trump is also a very staunch nationalism, or at least he, he, he pretends to be, and um, that may not be in Russia's favor. So uh, whatever happens, I, what, if the U.S. is out, uh, I think Europe is stepping up. We are seeing that Europeans, for the first time, are starting to take seriously the defense and security. And uh, we are seeing that I, I believe even New Zealand has stepped in now and increased its uh, support um, uh, to Ukraine, given that uh, there is a, a delay in American uh, aid. So, yes, um, elections could affect, but um, Ukrainians still want their country back. Mm. And they will continue f to fight. It will maybe take longer. There will be more losses and more, um, you know, frustration. But. Uh, I don't think this will be the deciding things in the war. The, the administration change will not be the deciding factor. Professor, we always appreciate your time and insights. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jack. Thank you. That's Professor Ruben Azizian. Hey, Q&A Q &A is back after the break. It is almost time for us to finish for this week, and we wanted to give the final word to Fa'anana Efeso Collins. As a new List MP for the Green Party, Ifesor delivered his maiden speech in Parliament just last week. If I was to inspire anyone by getting to this House and my work over the next three years, I hope that it's the square pegs, the misfits, the forgotten, the unloved, the invisible. It's the dreamers who want more, expect more, are impatient for change and have this uncanny ability to stretch us further. As well as an MP and former councillor, Ifesor was, of course, a friend of this show. He appeared in the studio and at this desk many times, and we were always really, really grateful for his time and contributions. Today, we are thinking of his wife, his daughters, and his family. We'll see you next week. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.